It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the flavours of the week, cold-pressed into one pocket-sized podcast. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And coming up, an app to get your goats and artificial intelligence in ancient Greece. But first, our cover story, Macron's nightmare, was our headline. Last week, tens of thousands of gilets jaunes protesters vandalised parts of Paris and brought traffic across France to a standstill in protest at new taxes on diesel. Emmanuel Macron considered declaring a state of emergency to contain the crisis. It's a far cry from how his presidency began. Young, intelligent and bubbling with ideas to make France more open, dynamic and fiscally sober, the Macron revolution seemed unstoppable. He swiftly passed long-needed reforms to make the labour market more flexible, working with moderate unions and facing down obstreperous ones. The budget was knocked into shape, meeting the Maastricht deficit limit of 3% of GDP for the first time since 2007. Since then, Mr Macron has seemed to forget that he's not a god-king, but a politician who needs to govern by consent. His auteur has led to a series of individually small but cumulatively destructive missteps, scolding a teenager for calling him Manu instead of Monsieur le Président, summoning Parliament to be lectured at the Palace of Versailles, talking of people who are nothing. We argued that Mr Macron has made a grave mistake antagonising the left behind. One of his first moves was to slash taxes on wealth. The old wealth tax was inefficient, incentive sapping and often avoided, but its removal should have gone side by side with more help for the hard up. Likewise, his tax rises on diesel are a sound green policy, but he should have paid more attention to the people they hurt most struggling rural folk who need to drive to work. The most damaging label that has stuck to the former banker is that he is the president of the rich. The president has decided to suspend the hated diesel tax, hoping to calm the situation, but we warned it could backfire. By giving ground at all, it may show that Mr Macron can be pushed around by mobs on the streets, thus encouraging more mobs to form. There is pressure on Mr Macron to bring back the wealth tax and further reform now looks much less likely than it did. Does all this mean that have your cake and eat it populism must triumph and that reformers will always be thwarted? To find out, pick up this week's issue of The Economist. And if you're not yet a subscriber, dear listeners, well, you can get your first 12 issues for just £12 or $12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. As Mr Macron tries to get his people back on side, the latest episode of The Economist Asks was mulling the potential of populism for destruction or perhaps for something better. I asked Steve Hilton, host of Fox News' The Next Revolution and author of Positive Populism, how this new political energy can be harnessed for good. 
The idea at the heart of positive populism is people power. Partly that's in terms of reforming governance, decentralizing power, but it's also in the economy, breaking up giant corporations so they're not so dominant and don't get the chance to exploit their workers in ways that we've seen. Would you break up tech companies? For sure. And in other sectors, you've seen sector after sector dominated by a handful of giant corporations. And that is a huge part of decentralising power that doesn't get discussed enough. But across the metaphorical table from him was Yasha Monk, a political scientist from Harvard and author of The People versus Democracy. Yasha cautioned that though these ambitions may be honourable, populist governments have yet to translate them into reality. Because they sweep aside institutional checks on their power, they end up with a lot of corruption. They end up spending far too much money and getting into debt crises. And we're seeing that right now in a remarkable number of countries. In Venezuela, where you had a left-wing populist in power for a long time, but also in uh, countries like Turkey and Russia. I think the right way to judge uh, economic populism of the authoritarian kind is not after two or three years in office. It's what it does to a political system and an economic system once it's consolidated its power over the course of 10, 15 years. Can Steve Hilton convince Yasha Monk that populism can return power to the people? Listen to the big debate on The Economist Asks by subscribing to Economist Radio on your podcast app. And, of course, tell us where you stand. Now I've got a little thought experiment for you. Picture an office, any office. Got it? Well, now have a listen to this. If in your office you as an intellectual worker were supplied with a computer display backed up by a computer that was alive for you all day and was instantly responsive to every action you had, how much value could you derive from that? That was Doug Engelbart, a pioneering computer scientist, speaking 50 years ago yesterday as he moved a mouse to open files and edit documents on a screen in front of him. Can you now imagine not having such a setup at your disposal? His demonstration has been known in the trade as the mother of all demos, a moment that changed the tech world. Here's Paul Sappho, futurist and forecaster from Stanford University, on our Babbage show. It was this absolutely astounding event. It was the first time that anyone put all the pieces together for computing. Multiple windows, two-way video conferencing, shared documents, the mouse... It was this vast shift. The Earth sort of shifted on its axis. Before then, machines were mainly about crunching numbers. And what that demo did was it demonstrated that computers were social devices and moreover, social devices that could become a powerful tool for improving the world. And you can hear how Engelbart's ideas continue to shape developments in computing and AI today by listening to Babbage. It's our weekly science and tech podcast from Economist Radio. Personal computers have created tremendous value, but they've also brought some new dangers. Our business and finance podcast, Money Talks, looked at the rise of online scams and why some people are more vulnerable to them than others. Professor Nathan Sprang is a neurologist at McGill University in Canada. I think that it is appropriate now to be treating vulnerability to fraud as a biomedical problem because we know that the human brain atrophies over the decades of life and that there's changes in the way older adult cognition is 
implemented. So with changes in advancing age, there's a tendency to bias information processing towards the positive and to diminish the negative potential repercussions of one's own behavior or how we read the environment. Professor Nathan sprang there with the science of scamming on Money Talks. Yes, it's a real show. Our increasingly networked world is creating a host of new business opportunities. Our Middle East and Africa section reported from Luanda, the capital of Angola, where Tupuka, a food delivery startup, is cornering a whole new market. Since October, users of the Tupuka app have begun to see other options alongside pizzas, burgers and sushi. They can buy coal, petrol, fruit and vegetables. Or they can purchase live animals such as chickens. $7 for a big clucker, $5 for a middling one. Pigs or goats. They're teaming up with other startups to get the goods from market to doorstep. Rocky Online employs an army of runners who track down the best produce. They buy the goat, say, take it to a driver... And before too long, the animal is on its way to a party where it will be slaughtered amid great jollity. Tough as it is on the goat, such businesses bridge the formal and informal economies. Luanda has a sizeable middle class, plus plenty of expats and a rich elite. But it also has millions of poor people living in slums wedged between skyscrapers. In the West, many people fret that the gig economy encourages insecure work. But in sub-Saharan Africa, where the informal economy is equivalent to more than a third of GDP, about twice that in rich countries, it may do the opposite. And finally to our books and art section, where the ancient myths provide unexpected lessons for today. Among the many monstrous threats to Jason and his Argonauts on their way home with the Golden Fleece was a giant killer robot. Designed by the god Hephaestus to protect the realm of King Minos, this bronze android, called Talos, was built to repel invaders by hurling rocks at any foreign ships that approached. The sorceress Medea saved the day, mesmerising the robot using her mind-control powers and then removing a bronze rivet from his ankle, causing the life fluid to drain away. Talos is described as an automaton, but if mind-control was his undoing... Was he more than a mere machine? Talos is sometimes depicted as a tragic figure, condemned for blindly following his programming, like Howl, the murderous supercomputer in 2001, A Space Odyssey. His story can also be read as a cautionary tale about the dangers of giving machines the power to kill when they lack the capacity to make moral judgments. In Gods and Robots, Adrian Mayer follows the paths of ancient myths into modern sci-fi and onto the real-world ethical dilemmas of autonomous weapons and artificial life. Aristotle pondered the use of machines in place of slaves and the prospect of technological unemployment. Pygmalion built the first sex bot. The inescapable conclusion is that, when it comes to modern debates about robots and machine intelligence, as with so many other things, the Greeks got there first. So we walk in the footsteps of giants. I'm not sure that's always reassuring. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. But as ever, there's much more where that came from at economist.com or from Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And while you're with us, leave us a review. It does make all the difference. We enjoy reading through them. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>